Well, Christmas, Christmas sermon. I, it's a it's a cool it's a cool opportunity to talk about something wonderful. Christmas is mysteriously, uh, well, maybe this is a better way to say it. Wonderfully mysterious to me. Um, it's a season that's full of wonder, uh, nostalgia, traditions, family. Music, it's as though there's a spell that's cast over society, it seems, at least those who are willing to participate, which is most. Most people understand what we mean when we talk about the the kind of uh, Merry Christmas feeling that comes with sleigh bells and children and ice skating and this idea of the Christmas cheer, chestnuts roasting on an open fire, talking snowmen, flying reindeer giving and receiving. We talk about the true meaning of Christmas. We talk about Bethlehem. We talk about the star. We talk about the magi. And we talk about the child. I feel like there's something almost magical about that whole package that comes at this time of year. As one person has said, and you've all heard it, it's the most wonderful time of the year. And I think people feel that. I think people feel that. I think people understand that something's happening. At least in Western culture, at least in the United States, at least the, the, the way that I grew up thinking about Christmas. And then I think of those who don't have a tree this year, and the reason they don't have a tree this year is because they don't have a house this year, because Hurricane Sandy wiped it out. And of course, I'm still thinking about Newtown, Connecticut, and that many people, I don't know if you heard this, many people took their Christmas lights down. After the shootings. Did you get, anybody hear about that? They took their Christmas lights down. But ma- massively across the town. Because they couldn't maintain the wonder. This year. Just didn't, just didn't feel right. I wonder if they'll ever re- recover that again. Some of those families. The nostalgia. The traditions. The family. The music, the sleigh bells, the children, the ice skating. It's too painful if your children have been murdered. It's too painful. And I think it begs the question, is is Christmas for the brokenhearted? No, I'm inexpressibly, truly inexpressibly thankful for the Norman Rockwell-esque experience of Christmas that I've had almost every year of my very privileged life. Truly. I mean, the most, the, the most sad Christmas I can think of was the year that my dog ran away. And, uh, and it, it was really sad, actually. It was a really sad Christmas. And, uh, uh, but she came back, right? She came back like a week later or something. Uh, so that's like the hardest Christmas I've ever been through. Okay, so not too bad. All things considered. But Christmas time is so unbearably painful for many people. And I've learned that as I speak about, as I think about, as we talk about the wonder of the Christmas season, that we have to remember the pain of those who can't taste the wonder right now. And I have to ask myself, is Christmas for them? I mean, isn't it for them? Isn't Christmas for the brokenhearted? Isn't Christmas for 
the shattered family, the defeated soul, the outcast, the enslaved, the lonely, the wrecked, or does it only bring joy to the healthy? Joy to the whole. Joy to the intact. Joy to the strong. Joy to the sane. Shouldn't, should we be singing joy to the healthy, or do we really mean it when we say joy to the world? And if it is joy to the world, then how do you get there in the wake of a year that was crowned with a devastating earthquake and a massacre just a few miles from here? Because that's the real world. Joy to that world? How do you get there? Last week in response to the Sandy Hook school shootings, among other things, we looked at John 16.33, and here's what Jesus taught us. He said, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Despite the tribulations that we face in this world, we should take heart because Jesus has overcome the world. He has dealt with the core problem in the world, namely sin, and he has overcome it. We saw that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is a guarantee for the certainty of the hope that we have that Jesus is going to renew this world. It's God's declaration of His triumph over sin. It's His declaration of His triumph over the grave. And it's the first installment of a transformation of all things. And that's why Paul says that if Jesus were not raised from the dead then our faith is futile and we Christians of all people ought to be most pitied. Because we bank everything on this. For us, the resurrection is what seals our hope. And if there is no resurrection from the dead, then Jesus has not overcome the world. We are dead in our sins. He did not defeat death. And truly, Christianity is a hoax. Show us the body and it's over. Show us the dead body, and it's over. Maybe that's a better way to say it. But the scripture teaches us that Christ has risen from the dead, and therefore the transformation of the cosmos is now underway. So there's a certainty of the hope that we have that Jesus is going to change things because Jesus has risen from the dead. But not only has Jesus risen from the dead, but something has happened in our lives experientially as well for those of us who know Jesus. If you're a Christian, you've already begun the process of being renewed spiritually. We've begun to participate in Christ's renewal of all things. We're already experiencing a foretaste of the reality of resurrection life. In some sense, we've been brought from death to life. And even though we're far from perfect, and we all know that, if you genuinely know Jesus, then you're not what you once were. You've started to change. You can look at the life of anyone who is genuinely trusting in Jesus Christ and you can say, you know, that person's not what they, they're not who they used to be. Something different. New creation has begun. That change is the first glimpse. It's the down payment of a new world. It's the beginning of a new reality And someday soon, that reality will be fully consummated when Jesus returns. So together with Christ's resurrection from the dead, this personal experience of new life functions as evidence for us that Christ has indeed 
overcome this world, and he's inaugurated a transformation that's already beginning. Sin and death do not have the last word. Jesus has begun to make all things new. Now this perspective, that's what we talked about last week, this perspective emphasizes the power of God. The power of God. The power of God to overcome sin and death. The power of God to overcome the wickedness of our own hearts. The power of God to overcome wickedness in the world. The power of God to overturn the curse that keeps this world in bondage to decay and destruction and mortality. Jesus has the last word. He is powerfully victorious over these things. And in some ways you could think of that as a response to the question of whether or not God is powerful enough to prevent calamity or to deal with suffering. Actually, that's one of the main criticisms of God when it comes to the problem of pain. The problem of pain, this this philosophical problem that through the ages philosophers and theologians and common man are working through how can it be that we live in a world that's filled with suffering if there's an all-powerful God. If he's all-powerful, why didn't he stop the hurricane? If he's all-powerful, why didn't he stop 9-11? If he's all-powerful, why didn't he stop Adam Lanza? Maybe he doesn't have the power, some might say. The question of God's power, and I would say, I'm not sure what his purposes were, but it's not due to the lack of power. He has power. He has all power. And he has secured the victory. And the change is already beginning to happen. And of course, the predictable, and I think the understandable response to that is, well, okay, if he's powerful enough to stop it, and he chose not to stop it, then he must not be loving. And this is the second philosophical question that almost everybody asks when you're dealing with the problem of pain. Because the idea goes, a loving person would stop this if they had the power to do so. So either he's not powerful or he's not loving. Which is it? And, you, and you're put into this, this uh, false dichotomy. So is he really loving? <coughs> and that's the problem I want to focus on this week. This is what happened in Newtown. This is what happened in your life this year. Or in your family's life this year. Or in the world this year. Does it call God's love into question? Has God stood by at a distance and heartlessly watched this world suffer? Though he is clothed in power. And I want to let Christmas speak to it. Let Christmas speak to that question of God's love. God really love a suffering world? <clears throat> and just as a disclaimer here, I'm, I'm not talking about this because I'm a skeptic, because I want you to be a skeptic. These are the kinds of questions that skeptics ask, and I think they're hard questions. Again, we're dealing with the problem of pain, and the reason we have to deal with it is because it's a problem for us, I'm trying to get our minds wrapped around this. I, I don't want you to be skeptical about whether or not God is loving, but that's why I'm talking about it. I want to try to put some, my prayer is that we can put some foundations uh, underneath our thinking so that we can think and respond biblically when tragedy strikes. Because the fact is, folks, you know as well as I do, it's going to happen again. It's going to happen again. 
And when it does, the world will be skeptical and your own heart will tend to be skeptical. So let's put some biblical foundations under that so that we can think rightly when it happens. Let's ask a hard question together and see if Christmas can help us gain some perspective on the problem of pain and the question of God's love. Has God stood by at a distance, heartlessly watching our suffering world, though he is clothed in power? Is God concerned about the trials and the sufferings of humanity? And the answer to this is, as you know, you bet he is. You bet he's concerned about it. So concerned, in fact, that he decided to join us, to live with us. To taste the world together with us. Us, to feel the curse together with us. Matthew tells us that the child born to Mary will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. He has not stood at a distance. He put on flesh. He dwelled among us in our world. He came and he felt, he felt, he felt our pain. If, you're, if you've got your Bible, open with me to Luke chapter 2. That's where we're going to be today. That's what Tim read for us. Luke chapter 2. Let's listen to the announcement that the angel made. Luke chapter 2 starting in verse 8. There were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. I'll just pause there. Anytime anytime an angel shows up in Scripture, I think we've said this before, the first thing that people do is they fear. So if you're you're, uh, in your mind, the the image that you have of angel is some cute, fat little kid with wings on his back. Um, That's not the idea that you get here. These, these, uh, These shepherds are afraid. Every time an angel shows up in the Bible, on your face. And the angel said to them, and this is what the angel always says, fear not. (laughs) Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. A baby. A helpless little child, vulnerable to the same cruel world that you and I know. He has to be wrapped up in cloth. Because if, he, if he's not, he's going to be cold. He's a baby. They lay him in a feeding trough because there aren't facilities available for him amongst the humans. He's born outside. Presumably in the midst of animals. Apparently by the age of two, in Matthew we read that uh, he and his parents have to flee for their lives because the ruler of the region, Herod the Great, calls for the murder of all male children under the age of two. It's a state-sanctioned execution of male children. Infants, really. Jesus tastes what it means to be human in this world. Our world. He's tasting it with us. And he didn't live the good life. He didn't keep his distance from the untouchable regions of the world. He didn't grow up in a a palace. He grew up 
working with his hands in a disreputable village called Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth? He was raised in an oppressed people group who were under the military occupation of a harsh foreign government. He was a good man. He loved God. He loved people. Yet he's betrayed and he's rejected by his nation. He's betrayed and rejected by his students. He's betrayed, rejected by his closest friends. He's rejected by his family. He speaks truthfully. He speaks with piercing insight. He speaks with perfect innocence. And yet, he's condemned by an illegal Jewish court. He's rejected by the masses in favor of a known insurrectionist and murderer named Barabbas. He's flogged by Roman soldiers. He's condemned by a Roman governor who doesn't even believe that he's guilty. And he's executed by means of suffocation under the weight of his own body when he can no longer stand the pain of holding himself up by the nails that had been impaled through his hands and feet. He most certainly knows what it's like in this world. And he knows what it's like to suffer in this world. So no... He has not stood at a distance and heartlessly watched the suffering of the world. He is intensely and personally aware and interested in our suffering. But there's something else that makes God's interest and participation especially wonderful, especially meaningful for us. <coughs> Excuse me. An anthropologist can endure a great deal of personal suffering for the sake of science, or social science. They can move into the midst of an unfamiliar people group, they can observe, taste their world, and in order to satisfy personal curiosity or in order to make a contribution to social sciences, uh, they can endure some suffering. But Jesus doesn't come in the name of, of social science. He didn't come to suffer with us in order to satisfy some curiosity about what it's like to be human. The incarnation of Jesus, the Messiah, God Almighty taking human flesh upon himself is not a social experiment. He came because he loves us. That's why he came. He came because his Father loves us. And so the Father sent the Son. God so loved the world that he gave his Son His coming is an expression of divine love for a suffering world. A mission to take care of us because of God's great compassion on a broken, broken world. He loves us. Let the angel explain this love. Look at verse 10, Luke chapter 2. The angel said to them, Fear not. For behold, I bring good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. I bring you good news of great joy. The angel here is, to, the angel is here to announce news. And the news is supposed to bring joy. Joy for all the people. 
The news does something beyond providing cheer and nostalgia to the whole and to the healthy. It's good news that's available to more than just the social elite. It's good news that's available to more than just the powerful, more than just the healthy. It's not limited to them. It's good news that's intended to provide joy for all the people, the angel says. So what's the news? Verse 11. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The child is born unto you, shepherds. Unto you, shepherds. The angel speaks to the shepherds who are known to be dishonest, generally untrustworthy. They belong to the lower class of society. They're poor. They're humbled. They're outsiders. And we, the readers, are to hear the address to these shepherds as though we're there. As though the angel is speaking to us. Unto you. Unto you, shepherds. Unto you, outcasts. Unto you, pariah. Unto you who are wrecked and weary and heartbroken. Unto you who despair under the curse. Unto you who suffer the pain that comes from this world. Unto you who suffer the pain that comes from the inside because of your failure to be the man or the woman that you want to be and that you ought to be. This child was born unto you, for you. He came here for you, to be with you and to help you, to save you. That's why he came. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. A Savior. A rescuer. A liberator. A hero. This is what God has given. God so loved the world that he gave his son to the world as a hero. A child whose life of suffering in this world together with us is not merely an attempt to relate to us and be with us here, not merely, but to rescue us so that we can be together with Him for eternity. The baby is a Savior. And the method of His salvation is to get into the trenches with us and to take a bullet for us. That's how He's going to save you. To offer His life in place of ours. To secure our good at His own expense. To suffer not only the cruelty of the elements of a world that's under curse, but to suffer something far worse. He comes to suffer the full fury of God's wrath poured out against sin. Jesus, the innocent and compassionate Son of God, willingly receives upon Himself the wages of what we have earned by our contribution to the darkness. Jesus the innocent comes to receive upon himself the wages that you have earned and the wages that I have earned, he receives them on himself. And those wages come from work that we have done by infusing into this world the very darkness that's out there that we hate. We create the pro- we are the problem. 
And God deals with Jesus not according to what Jesus deserves, but according to what we deserve. So that God can deal with us for an eternity, not according to what we deserve for the life that we have lived here, but instead according to what Jesus deserves for the life that he lived here. That's how God's going to treat us for eternity. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, for our sake, for our sake, for your sake, for my sake, he became sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God treats Jesus, the sinless one, like a sinner. Catch that. God treats Jesus, the sinless one, like a sinner. And that's what the cross is all about. God's judgment on sin. You want to know what my sin deserves? Look at the cross. And as a result, God treats us, the sinners, now and forever, as though we are sinless. That's what the cross is all about. He's purchasing our forgiveness. That's what it costs. That's what it costs for us to be right with God. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. And then the angel tops it off, who is Christ the Lord. Who is Christ the Lord. The word Christ is not the last name of Jesus. It's a title that's given to him. We could translate it the Messiah. Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Messiah literally means the anointed one, which is a reference to the ritual that was performed in Israel when a new king is being installed. The anointing of, of his head with oil was the way of symbolizing God's covenantal pledge of support that, that God has invested this person with his spirit and has authorized this person now to function as Israel's king. So that's what the anointed one was, was the king of Israel. And Israel was waiting for the anointed one, the Messiah who would finally fulfill God's promises to provide an heir for the line of David to sit on the throne in Israel and deliver Israel from sin and bring peace and restore righteousness to the land and set things straight between God and his people. And the good news that the angel announces is that he has come. The Christ is here. The anointed one is here. The heir of David is here. The one who will restore the nation is here. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is the Christ, the Lord. The time has come. The Messiah has arrived. And the renewal is now underway. And therefore, the broken can rejoice. It's the broken who can rejoice. It's the shepherds. The broken world can rejoice because Christmas is here. The Savior of the broken is here. In fact, it seems to me that the broken are the only ones who actually get Christmas because they're the only ones who really, really understand that they need Christmas. Because they know that they need Christ. I need Him. I need His birth. I need to be saved from the world. I need to be saved from myself. 
I need to be saved from the wages that I have earned before God. I need to be right with God. I need a Savior. And so the news that God has sent the Savior is truly music to our ears. It's good news of great joy. So God has not stood by and watched our suffering from afar as a powerless and cold-hearted deity who just set the world into motion and is now standing back and watching to see what happens. In his power, he has conquered sin and death. And in his love, he has sent a Savior to be with us and to rescue us and to give us an eternity together with him. And in the meantime, here we are waiting in this world until he takes our life or until he returns. And it's a battleground. It's an ugly battleground. We're battling sin and we're tasting the reality of the curse but somehow he sustains his people with a peace on our hearts that only he can give glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased peace it's an ugly battlefield and I don't know why he chooses to prevent some things and he chooses not to prevent other things I don't, I don't know why he does that. His purposes are his own. They're always wise. They're always good. At some point we will see, we'll understand, and we will agree with him. But for now, they're often veiled. But I do know this. When we face suffering in this world, it is never for lack of love. It is never for lack of love. Love drove the Father to send his Son, and love drove the Son give his life for you and for me so that we might be sustained through this and ultimately rescued from it. Out of love for you, unto you, is born this day in the city of David a Savior, Jesus Christ the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love for us, that you have pursued us relentlessly in my 30 plus years. This reminder of a Savior being born has fallen on my ears. Most of my life I've been deaf to the call, but you have been relentless and I thank you for year after year, proclaiming to me again and again, unto you, Jeremy, is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Unto you, new hope, is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. I pray that we would celebrate this Christmas season the childlike hope. And even if the nostalgia and the bells and the snowmen are stripped away, if they don't bring the joy and the uh, little tastes of wonder that they often bring, I do pray, God, that there would be something deeper than that, that underneath all the pain, all the suffering, all the disillusionment, all the 
failed expectations of what this life and what this year was supposed to bring. I pray that underneath it all, we would find that there is truly a reason to rejoice in this world. And it's not because this world is pretty. It's because there has been a Savior to uh, bring redemption to this broken world. We look forward to your return, Lord Jesus, and pray that you would come quickly. But as you tarry, Lord, we pray that we would not count the slowness of the Lord as slowness, but as mercy, as more time given to us to repent and to seek and save others as your gospel goes forth through the lips of your people to proclaim that Christ is Lord and Savior. Continue to mold our hearts and help us to slow down and and not be like the innkeeper in the days to come who missed what was right before him. We pray these things in Jesus' name.